this morning we look at Ezekiel chapter 16. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Uh, If you don't have your Bible with you, you can find this on page 831. 831 in the blue Bible in front of you. We'll be looking at the entire chapter of chapter 16, but I'm only going to read the first 43 verses. Ezekiel chapter 16. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices. And say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water to make you clean. Nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field. From the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew and you you who were naked and bare. Later, I passed by and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. I put a ring on your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey, and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also, the food I provided for you, the fine flour, olive oil and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. This is what happened, declares the Sovereign Lord. And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me. And sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. In all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, kicking about in your blood. Woe, 
Woe to you, declares the Sovereign Lord. In addition to all your other wickedness, you built a mound for yourself and made a lofty shrine in every public square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty shrines and degraded your beauty, offering your body with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. You engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and provoked me to anger with your increasing promiscuity. So I stretched out my hand against you and reduced your territory. I gave you over to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were shocked by your lewd conduct. You engaged in prostitution with the Assyrians, too, because you were insatiable. And even after that, you were still not satisfied. Then you increased your promiscuity to include Babylonia, a land of merchants. But even with this, you were not satisfied. How weak-willed you are, declares the Sovereign Lord, when you do all these things, acting like a brazen prostitute. When you built your mounds at the head of every street and made your lofty shrines in every public square, you were unlike a prostitute because you scorned payments. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. Every prostitute receives a fee, but you give gifts to your lovers bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. So in your prostitution, you are the opposite of others. No one runs after you for your favors. You are the very opposite, for you give payments, and none is given to you. Therefore, you prostitute. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you poured out your wealth and exposed your nakedness and the promiscuity of your lovers, because of all your detestable idols and because you gave them your children's blood. Therefore, I am going to gather all your lovers with whom you found pleasure, those you loved as well as those you hated. I will gather them against you from all around and will strip you in front of them and they will see all your nakedness. I will sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. I will bring upon you the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger. Then I will hand you over to your lovers and they will tear down your mounds and destroy your lofty shrines. They will strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewelry and leave you naked and bare. They will bring a mob against you who will stone you and hack you to pieces with their swords. The story of a nation's history is a very sensitive matter. In fact, uh, when revolutions occur, one of the first things that happens is they rewrite the history of the nation. The story of our own nation is a wonderful story, isn't it? We think of it as a great and noble story. We begin with Christopher Columbus's daring voyage to discover a new world. We think of the courageous pilgrims establishing a colony at Plymouth Rock in search of religious freedom. Then the brave colonists stood up to Mad King George and the oppressive British Parliament declared their independence with the bold assertion that all men are created equal, endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. And we celebrate great heroes like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Now, the Civil War was a trying time, of course, but it was fought for a good cause. And that war, and perhaps even the death of Lincoln himself, served in some sense as an atonement our one great national sin of slavery. In America in the 20th century emerges the most powerful and prosperous nation in the history of the world. 
It's a great story. And so we look at this story. We think of America as a city on a hill, a shining light in the world, a force for good, a beacon of freedom and democracy to all nations. That's our story, isn't it? It's who we are. Our story defines us. It serves as a source of national identity. It, it, it determines how we think about ourselves. And so when the uh, Smithsonian Museum a few years ago had an exhibit displaying the Enola Gay, that uh, plane that dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, some of you may recall that even Congress got involved in determining how that event would be described. You see, we have a story to preserve an identity that we hold dear. And Israel, at the time of Ezekiel, they had a national story too. It began... When God called Abraham, that great man of faith, and God promised to make him into a great nation, and through the patriarchs uh, Isaac and Jacob, that promise endured. And then through Moses, God showed how much he cared for Israel by bringing them out of the slavery of Egypt with a mighty hand. Israel was God's favored nation. They were his people. And to them alone, he entrusted his holy law on Mount Sinai. And then through Joshua, he, he led them into a promised land flowing with milk and honey. The Lord dwelt with them, eventually occupying a magnificent temple built during the glory days of King Solomon, the heir of the royal Davidic line ruling from Jerusalem. That was their story. It shaped their identity, their perception of themselves, and it still does. The divine covenant that bound them to their God became a source of presumptuous and prideful self-confidence, a cause for boasting. And why wouldn't it? Hadn't the Lord chosen them from all the nations of the world to be His treasured possession? They must have been pretty special. And this was their lofty status from which to look down on all the other nations of the world. And after the national split... Uh, they even looked down on the northern tribes who had broken or, and then centered around the city of Samaria. That, that northern kingdom would be overrun by the Assyrians in 722. But that won't happen to us. No, Yahweh, the Lord, He is our God. We are His people. And one commentator summed it up. He said the story of Israel had generated a worldview which took as axiomatic that Israel was indestructible, Jerusalem was inviolable, the covenant was unbreakable, all would be welcome, hell or Nebuchadnezzar. That's how they saw themselves. But that's not how the Lord saw them. And you see, the prophet Ezekiel wants to set matters straight. And so he engages in some revisionist history retelling the story of Israel's history from God's point of view, a story which leads to, or rather demands, a very different ending. Now, it's not a literal historical account, but it's an extended metaphor crafted to make a point. Israel's history was not as glorious as she perceived it to be. In fact, in God's eyes, that history was downright disgusting. And using graphic language that's meant to shock his listeners, Ezekiel relates Israel's history using the image of an adulterous wife. In fact, she's become a, a nymphomaniacal prostitute, lusting after her many lovers. And with jealous passion, the Lord is righteously angry with his bride, and he's bringing her to divorce court to set forth his case. So turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 60. 
We read this. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices. And say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother is a Hittite. You see, instead of extolling the honorable and hallowed tradition of Abraham and the patriarchs, Ezekiel shockingly gives Israel totally pagan roots. Don't forget where you've come from, he says. You don't have some pristine pedigree that should merit you honor and respect. Abraham himself was a nomad from among the moon worshippers, you know. Your capital city, Jerusalem, was a pagan city before David came along and captured it. For centuries, it was full of ungodly practices. But Ezekiel's point is not here. Uh, point here is not just uh, genealogical, it's theological. Israel's origins were just as pagan as the nations they so despised. They had no special claim on God, no grounds for his election of them. In fact, if it had not been for the Lord, Israel as a people would never have lived to see the light of day. On the day you were born, he says in verse 4, you were unwanted, exposed as a victim of female infanticide. You were discarded like a piece of trash on a dump heap, thrown out into an open field. You had no mother, not even a nurse, to do all the things necessary for a newborn infant, cutting the umbilical cord, washing and clothing you. There was nothing glorious at all about this birth. You had nothing to commend you. Nobody to care for you. You would have died right then and there. Verse 6, Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, Live. Live. The Word of God gave life. And Israel as a nation owed its very life, its existence to the grace of God. But the Lord doesn't just give life. In an outpouring of generosity, He brings great blessing. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. And then in this uh, Cinderella-like story, when the child of Israel grows to maturity, this merciful benefactor takes her as his beloved bride. Referring perhaps to the institution of the Mosaic Covenant made with the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, he says in verse 8, Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Now, Ezekiel is not the first to use the metaphor of marriage to describe this covenant relationship that the Lord had with Israel. This most intimate of personal relationships was a fitting model for the love and commitment which the divine covenant expressed. And as his beloved bride, Israel belonged to the Lord, not in a a selfish sense of possession for his own pleasure. No, she belonged to him so that he might shower upon her his blessing. Verse 10, I clothed you with an embroidered dress. I put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen, covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, a beautiful crown on your head. 
you became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you, in fact, literally, it's my splendor that I had given you, made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereignty. And this description perhaps fits the glory days of the reign of King Solomon. Such is the grace of God, lavishing His grace on those who had done nothing to deserve it. The child was rescued and then blessed solely on the basis of this totally self-motivated, unconditional love of God. We think of the old hymn, Rock of Ages, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to Thee for dress. Helpless look to Thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. This is Israel. And this is the love of God for her. But the story of blessing suddenly turns a corner into a a deep darkness. It becomes Cinderella in reverse. In verse 15, instead of responding to God's goodness with thanksgiving and praise and and love, you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. Israel became nothing but a whore. She used a strong language. But I use that word deliberately because that's the tone of what Ezekiel says here. The translators, in fact, tone it down significantly. The language in the Hebrew throughout this passage is coarse. It is crude, bordering on pornographic. The covenant declared that you were to have no other gods before me, forsaking all others. You were to keep you only unto me. That's the agreement. But what have you done? You've gone after other lovers. You've bestowed your favors on them like a harlot. And here Ezekiel's referring to the worship of pagan gods on what they called their high places, their mounds, their sacred spaces where they would make their sacrifices to these foreign gods. And they looked to these foreign gods for protection and security, for success and fertility and procreation, for material prosperity and national safety. And such idolatry was nothing less than adultery in God's eyes. And their brazen behavior is made all the worse because they take the blessings of God and then use them to engage in their hookups. The garments, the fine jewelry, my gold and silver... Also the food I provided for you. You lavished them on your illicit lovers. And then we read in verse 20. Was your prostitution not enough? You took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. Child sacrifice was a a common practice among the Canaanites. And it was not uncommon in times of spiritual decline in Israel. It goes without saying, it was most grievous to God. You slaughtered my children, sacrificed them to the idols. My children, they belong to Him. 
Do I even need to mention the scandal of abortion in our culture at this point? They sacrifice children after they were born to their gods. We do it before they're born. Does the Lord see a difference? Or perhaps we can just think of the millions of abandoned children in our culture. Growing up without fathers or with absent mothers because sexual promiscuity or career ambitions trumps marital fidelity and parental responsibility. Graham Kendrick's hymn, which draws on the imagery of Ezekiel, says it well. Who can sound the depths of sorrow in the father heart of God? For the children we've rejected, for the lives so deeply scarred. And each light that we've extinguished has brought darkness to our land, upon our nation, upon our nation. Have mercy, Lord. We have scorned the truth you gave us. We have bowed to other lords. We have sacrificed the children on the altars of our gods. Oh, let truth again shine on us. Let your holy fear descend upon our nation. Upon our nation. Have mercy, Lord. And this religious prostitution is matched by Israel's political prostitution. You see, they were a nation unto God. Yahweh the Lord was their protector. But instead of looking to the Lord in times of distress, they sought to form alliances with the most likely protecting power among the surrounding nations. Verse 26, you engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors. And provoke me to anger with your increasing promiscuity. Verse 28. You engaged in prostitution with the Assyrians too. Because you were insatiable. And even after that you still were not satisfied. Verse 29. Then you increased your promiscuity to include Babylonia. But even with this you were not satisfied. How weak-willed you are, declares the Sovereign Lord, when you do all these things, acting like a shameless prostitute. But they were a strange kind of prostitute, he says. Verse 33, every prostitute receives a fee. But you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. And this no doubt refers to the extravagant tributes that Israel paid out to the nations for their protection, nearly draining her national treasury. Verse 32, you adulterous wife. You prefer strangers. To your own husband. That sums it up, doesn't it? A pretty disgusting picture. The word prostitute in some form occurs 21 times in this chapter. And no doubt because of its sexual content, this passage is not for general audiences. And I'm sorry if some of you feel offended by it. But sin is ugly in God's sight. One writer commenting on this compared it to what is presented in the movie Schindler's List. Some of you will recall that movie. It was depicting the evil of the Nazi Holocaust. That was a hard movie to watch. It was brutally violent and degrading. It well deserved its R rating. But in a sense, you see, only an R rated movie could begin to communicate the evil of the Nazis. And you can say that any depiction of the reality of human evil should be rated R because sin is so ugly, it is so filthy, it is so revolting in the sight of God. That's how God sees it. Our problem, of course, is that we don't see it that way. To us, it's attractive, seductively so. And certainly that's the way it's 
portrayed most of the time in novels and movies and TV. Adultery is romantic, it's exciting, it's cool, it's common. We can justify our sin, our adultery. We can rationalize it and convince ourselves that really we had no choice in the matter. Our, our various idols are just common to our age. It's what everyone else is doing. And I'm sure that's just what the Israelites said when they set up their Asherah poles in the temple of Jerusalem. Surely the Lord won't mind. But He does mind. He minds as much as a husband minds if his wife decides to have a sexual relationship with another man. You see, God is passionately jealous for our hearts. We are created for Him. And He has acted in Jesus Christ, giving His own Son to die on a cross to gain our hearts for Himself. Yes, He minds. He minds when we go our merry way as if as if He didn't exist. He minds when we make ourselves God in His place. He minds when we look to our jobs or our families or our hobbies as the real center of our lives, leaving Him with just the, the leftovers on the margins. He minds. And so He says to Israel, you adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. You just don't get it, do you? You think all is well. You think we will always be in my good graces no matter how you behave. And then you look down on everybody else thinking you're so special. And then you see he extends this family metaphor a little further. Jerusalem, you've got two sisters, you know. He says to them in verse 45. And you are a true sister of your sisters who despise their husbands and their children. First there is your sister Samaria the capital of the northern kingdom, which you despise as so ungodly because she broke away from the Davidic rule, established her own temples, her own priesthood. She's your sister. And the truth is, the Lord says, Samaria did not commit half the sins you did. And then there's your sister, Sodom. Oh yes, Sodom, notorious for her sinfulness. Verse 49, she and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. But you, verse 47, you not only walked in their ways and copied their detestable practices, but in all your ways, you soon became more depraved than they. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, your sister, sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. Compared to you, Sodom and Samaria were downright righteous, he says in verse 51. So then be ashamed and bear your disgrace, he says, verse 52. You see, this is the, the story of the history of Israel according to the Lord. This is what their sin looked like in his eyes. This is Israel. The people of God. Unlike any other nation in the world, they had the law of God. They were the children of the covenant, faithfully circumcising their sons on the eighth day. They had the priesthood, the temple worship, sacrificing their bulls and goats and lambs on the altar of the, of the Lord. They had Abraham as their father. They had a noble history with heroes like Moses and David and Solomon. They were the Lord's treasured possession. But in recounting that history, this is what the Lord sees. The ugliness of their sin. Which is nothing less than a brothel in His sight. 
Verse 35. Therefore, you prostitutes, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, because you poured out your wealth and exposed your nakedness and the promiscuity with your lovers, and because of all your detestable idols and because you gave them your children's blood, therefore I am going to gather all your lovers with whom you found pleasure, and I will strip you in front of them, and they will see all your nakedness. I will sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. I will bring upon you the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger. You see here, sin matters to God. He cares deeply about righteousness. He cares deeply about the honor of His own name. It was Pascal in the 17th century who once said, the God of the philosophers is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what he meant by that was that the God of the philosophers was simply a proposition. He was a a first cause. He was an omnipotent power. But the God of Abraham and Jacob, the God of the Bible, he is a passionate person. And this makes a huge difference in the way we think about morality. You see, sin is not just breaking some abstract moral code. God takes it personally. King David realized this. When he committed adultery against Bathsheba, he could pray to the Lord and say, against you and you only have I sinned. He knew that his sin was first and foremost a personal offense against the living God. I was talking to a friend the other day who's not yet a Christian and he he said something interesting. He said he wouldn't cheat on his long-time living girlfriend because he knew that it would disrupt the relationship he had with her, even if she never found out. And I thought that was interesting. You see, that's what sin does. It disrupts a relationship. And so when we tell those little lies that make us look good or selfishly demand our way and pout when we don't get it, and, and when we let our eyes linger and our minds wander into lustful fantasies, it disrupts a relationship. We've betrayed the one who loves us. We've committed adultery against our Lord. And that matters to him. It matters deeply. And you see, he's not just hurt. He's not just offended. He is angry. He's a God who says to his people back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. And His anger will burn against you. And He will destroy you from the face of the land. His anger burns. He he, he likens it to that of a jilted lover, an aggrieved husband who comes home and discovers his wife in bed with another man. His is a righteous anger. And with it comes a righteous judgment. He says to Israel, verse 58, you will bear the consequences of your lewdness and your detestable practices. You see, Ezekiel must get the Jewish exiles to face the fact that the sin of Israel was such as to deserve their complete eradication as the people of God. Their judgment by God is imminent and it will be severe. So is that the end? Is the divorce final? 
and complete. Well, and what is perhaps the most surprising twist in this story? The answer to that question is no. It's not the end. The judgment was the end for Jerusalem and the temple. They'd both be destroyed within five years. But it was not the end of the Lord's purposes for Israel and for the nations. You see, the the Lord now speaks of a restoration. A restoration that is as unexpected as it is undeserved. Verse 59, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet, I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. You see, Israel may forget. She may forget, as it says in verse 22, the days of her youth when she was naked and bare, kicking about in her blood. She may forget God's grace to her in giving her life and then lavishly blessing her with good things. Israel may forget, but the Lord God will remember. He will remember His promise. The promise of the covenant He made with Abraham to make of Him a great nation. That will bring blessing to all the nations. And that blessing to all nations is depicted here symbolically in the equally unexpected restoration of Jerusalem's sisters, Samaria and Sodom. Verse 53, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters, of Samaria and her daughters, and your fortunes along with them. Israel is confronted with the humiliating notion that if the Lord can restore her, then Sodom will be no problem. You see, these are humbling, even shaming words. But you see, they're essential for understanding the grace of God in the gospel. You see, the gospel eliminates all cause for boasting, all sense of entitlement, all sense of self-serving comparisons with others. The gospel undermines our pride. I mean, isn't that the message of Jesus in his parable about the despicable tax collector and the respectable Pharisee? You see, the tables are turned. The order's reversed. It's the wicked tax collector who goes home justified. And so here, the Israelites will join with her sister Sodom when God acts in grace and mercy. God will remember His covenant with His people. The covenant was not dead. Though the people of Israel would experience the outpouring of curses that were written into that covenant, You remember, the covenant offered a choice between life and death. These people chose death. But the covenant also included a way to life. Back in Leviticus chapter 26, 43, we read, They will pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. Though they have been unfaithful, He will remain faithful forever. But notice what Israel will remember on that day of restoration. They will remember their shame. Look at verse 61. Then you will remember your ways And be ashamed. Verse 63. Then when I make atonement for you, for all you've done, you will remember. And be ashamed. And never again open your mouth because of your humiliation. 
declares the Sovereign Lord. They will remember their shame. Now, now why is that? They will remember their shame so that they will always remember to remain humbly in God's grace. Grace comes through truth. Remember? We will only continue to experience God's grace as we humbly recognize the truth of who we are. And only then will we know that He is the Lord, that He is a holy God and a merciful God. Grace comes through truth. And so as we close this morning, let's talk a little bit about a revisionist history of our own. Not of nations, but of our own lives. You see, every one of us carries within us a certain story of our lives. A story that defines you. It, it, it includes some events that shaped you and where you've come from, your, your relationships that have influenced you, things, things that come together to create a sense of, of a life story, a sense of personal identity, a way of perceiving who you are. Now, my question is this. How does your own life story compare to the way that God perceives your life? Are you like Israel was in Ezekiel? Say, pretty, pretty confident in yourself? Yes, I'm a Christian, child of God, but of course, I'm a pretty good person. Why shouldn't I be a Christian? I, I made a good decision to choose Christ. I mean, I'm not like all those wicked people out there who stay home on Sunday mornings to read the papers. No, I'm here in church. I read my Bible. I pray. I put a check in the offering. I'm one of God's chosen people. And even before I became a Christian, I wasn't really so bad. I mean, I just felt I needed a, a certain sense of purpose in my life. or I wanted to feel loved. Or I did feel a little guilty about a few things, but there was no radical change. I mean, I was a, I was a pretty decent person. I hadn't murdered anybody. I wasn't a thief or a drug addict. I, I just added God to my life to make things a little better. Is that your life story? But is that how God viewed your life? Think about the words of Paul that uh, Mark read for us earlier. Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Or what does Paul say in Colossians 1.21? Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Or Colossians 3.5, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Now, speaking to the young pastor Titus, and including himself with him, Paul writes, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Do, do you see yourself in those words? Dead in your transgressions and sins. 
gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, by nature, objects of wrath, alienated from God, enemies of His in your minds? Is that part of your life story? You see, one day it will be. When you see yourself fully and completely as God sees you. And I ask you, if this isn't true about you, then why did God have to send His own Son into the world to die a shameful death to take away your sin? Why? If all you needed was a little boost, a little meaning, a purpose to your life. No. no. You see, your sin, my sin, is far worse than we can imagine. In God's sight, we have acted like filthy prostitutes. And He says to us, when I make atonement for you for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation. You will remember. I doubt if you've ever had anybody tell you that you need to remember your sins. I mean, those are the things we're ashamed of, aren't they? Things that we wish we could put behind us and never think of again. But that's not the way the Bible speaks, no. Now, Moses in Deuteronomy 9 says, Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. Remember this and never forget it. How you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been a rebellious people against the Lord. Remember this. Never forget it. How you provoked the Lord your God to anger. Now, it's true. The Lord blots out our sin when we're forgiven. And there is a right sense in which we should forget what lies behind and press on toward what's ahead. But it's also true that the memory of what we have been saved from should enhance our gratitude and the joy that are ours as we think of God's saving grace in the gospel. Our shame, you see, is the humbling realization that God's judgment of us is just. And that His salvation is entirely a matter of His incredible grace, not our merit. When He died on the cross, It was for my sin that He died. You see, there are two ways to minimize the glory of the grace of God in the cross of Christ. There is a road and there are ditches on both sides. On the one side is to be self-exalted in pride. To think too highly of yourself. To think too little of your sin. That's the one we're most prone to, I think. Israel was back in verse 56. He says, you would not even mention your sister Sodom in the day of your pride before your wickedness was uncovered. Jerusalem refused to believe that she and Sodom were really of the same stock. No, I'm not like her. It wasn't true. Self-exalted pride. Thinking too highly of yourself, too little of your sin. That's one ditch. But there's one on the other. Another way to minimize the glory of the grace of God and the cross of Christ is to wallow in self-pity. To think only of your sin. And to think too little of God's grace in your life. No. Consider your sin 
Let that sin drive you to the cross of Christ. Not just on the day of your conversion. No, but on every day of your Christian life. Remember your sin. And then flee to the cross. Flee to the cross and cling to it, you see. That's what Ezekiel is calling Israel to do. That's what God is calling us to do. I like the instruction that John Newton gave on on how his epitaph should be written. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, who was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. You see, it's only the true depth of our sin that makes God's grace so amazing. So don't forget it. Don't forget it. Let's pray. Paul writes, at one time you too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. In a time of great spiritual revival in the 1740s, New England pastor Jonathan Edwards wrote a letter to a young Christian woman requesting pastoral advice. Among his list of 19 pieces of advice, Edwards wrote this. Number four, though God has forgiven and forgotten your past sins, yet don't forget them yourself. Often remember what a wretched bond slave you were in the land of Egypt. Often bring to mind your particular acts of sin before conversion, as the blessed Apostle Paul is often mentioning his old blaspheming, persecuting, injuriousness, to the renewed humbling of his heart and acknowledging that he was the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, the least of the saints, the chief of sinners. Number five. Remember that you have more cause, on some accounts a thousand times more, to lament and humble yourself for sins that have been since conversion than those that were before conversion because of the infinitely greater obligations that are upon you to live to God. Look upon the faithfulness of Christ 